Welcome to Birth Stories in Color, a podcast creating community for people of color to share and learn from birth stories of all types. We're your hosts, Laurel Gurrier and Danielle Jackson. Today's episode features Mabel Bacheron, whose birth story includes infertility, advocating for a trial of labor after a laparoscopic myomectomy, pregnancy with fibroids, and a redemptive vaginal birth. With fibroids being very prevalent in the Black community and not enough awareness and discussion around it, we are very welcoming to hearing Mabel share her experience and allowing us to hold space for it. With that, hello, Mabel. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hello. Yeah, so it's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. Let's start with you telling us about you and your family. Sure. So I am a wife and a mom. I've been married for a little over five years to my college sweetheart. His name is Tim. And I have an almost two-year-old. His name is Simi. Well, his name is Dara Simi. <laughs> Say the whole name, right? His name is Olua Dara Simi. But yes. We, we call him Simi and he's very special to us. Um, I am a former educator. I was in education education for a number of years. I taught middle school and then I worked for the school system. But after I had my son, I went um, full steam into staying at home. And I also um, rededicated my career to birth work. So I'm also a doula right now. And um, I'm enjoying this new phase in life. The transition in childbirth can always just brings like this point for women where they're like, Am I going back to work? Am I not? And what does that look like, right? Absolutely. And birth work really becomes like a growth process for a lot of women after they've given birth, whether it's a positive or negative experience. It's like either I want to help someone else have a good experience, whether I have one or not, or just wanting to teach and learn more, right? Absolutely. I have been um, working as a doula like on the side when I was um, in education, but I told my husband, I was like, if we can manage it, I would love to stay at home and really um, delve into that, that field. And so I feel very fortunate to be able to dedicate my work to being a doula. I know for some women, it's like one foot in, one foot out of the door in terms of that transition. But um, um, I would say for me, and I'm sure when I start my story, um, it wasn't even a matter of having a child that got me into doula work, but a lot of instances that happened before I got pregnant. So yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about because usually we're going okay. Tell us about your pregnancy, but can you yeah start us from the beginning for you, um, before you got to this pregnancy or yeah the journey behind it all. Definitely. Um. So, um, about a year after I got married, um, my well my husband and I decided to wait before trying to have kids. We wanted to dedicate like one year to ourselves before becoming parents. So when that one year came and went, you know, we were excited to start a family. And quite by accident, I went in for a checkup that was absolutely unrelated to pregnancy or anything. It was just a comprehensive checkup. And the results from that checkup um, made me aware to the fact that I was extremely anemic. Like, devastatingly anemic. I had no idea, but looking back, I should probably have known these the signs. And so the doctor told me I needed to go and see an OB 
to see what the cause could be because at the time I had also been experiencing heavy periods. And upon going to my OB, I found out I had fibroids. And this is me about around the age of 26. And so I'll be honest to tell you, I was quite shocked, you know, to be that young and being told I had fibroids because honestly, I had, I had heard of fibroids, but I usually aligned it to like older menopausal women because at that point in my life, a lot of older women were talking about having fibroids, but I never equated the fact that I could be young and have fibroids too. And my doctor, you know, she was quite, I wouldn't say dismissive, but very casual about the news. She's like, you know, a lot of women get them. It's not a problem. They're not too big. You don't have to worry about it right now. You can go on and, you know, live your life, try to get pregnant. If you want to deal with the heavy periods, we can attend to that. And so after I got the news of having the fibroids, I did not do anything about them. I, we went about trying to get pregnant. The fibroids weren't in the way, so um, we went on to try to get pregnant. I didn't get pregnant, but um, about a year after finding out I had fibroids, I had a miscarriage. And shortly after having a miscarriage, one of my girlfriends was on bed rest because she had fibroids. And they were so problematic that she had to stay at home. And so I think coupled with my friend's scenario and also having gone through a miscarriage, I decided that maybe um, surgery would be the best choice for me. Um, there are some other ways to attend to fibroids, but for me, I decided to get them surgically removed. Um, and to be honest, that was the best choice for me. Um, I had what is called a laparoscopic myomectomy. Um, laparoscopic is a fancy word for robotic, right? So it's a minimally invasive procedure to remove the fibroids and it's done through robotic means. Another way that a lot of women remove fibroids is what is called an abdominal myomectomy. And that's when they open you up like a C-section and they remove the fibroids. Um, that one is a very invasive procedure. And so I was very happy that I was a good candidate for the minimally invasive route because um, from what I had read, not from what I was told, but from what I had read was that if you have a laparoscopic myomectomy, you have a better chance at having a vaginal birth. And I really wanted that opportunity. And so I went on to have the lap myo. It went well, recovery went well. And, um, it changed my life. Um, I didn't have a lot of the symptoms I had before the surgery. I felt, I felt like I had a new lease at life. You know, I took my health a bit more seriously and I just went full steam ahead. Um, also during this time, I got really, really um, obsessed with pregnancy and birth and everything having to do with motherhood and labor and delivery. And in the midst of that, I became exposed to doula support. I did not know anything about what doulas were and what they did, but when I was in my waiting season, that's what I um, came across and developed an interest in that. And so um, as I was going through this time frame of healing and trying to get pregnant, I also became a doula. And um, it was life-changing for me because it exposed me to what it meant, what it meant to advocate for other women, but also what it meant to advocate for myself. And so the first 
mode of advocacy that I did was I started to look around for doctors that would support me in having a vaginal birth when I did get pregnant, right? Because I, you know, did a surgery and I wasn't getting pregnant, but I knew one day I would. So I was like, let me at least find somebody who will support me when I get there. And um, like Laurel and Danielle, like if I, I cannot explain to you the struggle that I went through. And mind you, this is not just me. Like I'm going to the doctor's offices with like medical reports and journals and my, my surgery history. And I'm, I had like a little folder. I remember it was red. It was a little, little red folder and I had everything printed out in copies just in case they wanted a copy for themselves. And every report said that if you have a laparoscopic myomectomy, you are at a very high rate of having a successful vaginal birth if you go through certain guidelines. And despite me having all of this information, every doctor told me no. I probably went to about 12 doctors in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. They all said no. And the, their only reason for saying no was because they had never done it before. It wasn't like there was something in my medical history that was preventing it. It wasn't as if my fibroids were so big and problematic. It was just, well, we, we don't do that. So we're not going to do it. And the level of frustration and despair I felt because I felt like I wasn't being given a chance. And I was, I was totally dumbfounded. And I came to realize that I'm pretty sure many other women in my scenario have been told if you have a myomectomy, you simply cannot have a vaginal birth. It wasn't as if you, they were ever explained or, you know, they were, you know, broken down like the risks and benefits. They were just told no, because that's what I was being told. And I had seen almost a dozen doctors. And so finally, one day, one day I, I found one doctor and he's like, look, I've never done this before. I don't know anybody who's done it before, but I'll give you a chance. And um, I don't know, it, it's, it's amazing when you just, you get a yes after getting a series of no's and someone who is looking at you as an individual, right? They're not looking at you because of your stats or your history, they're looking at you as an individual. And this is me before having a baby or having gotten pregnant. So once, I feel like once I found someone who would support me, a provider who would support me, that's when I began to relax. I think shortly after that, I got pregnant. I don't know if that's all correlated, but you know, it was within a matter of months that I found a great provider. Um, and my husband and I were still trying to get pregnant. And you know, I had even made an appointment to do IUI because this is like going on year four of not getting pregnant. So I finally resolved and said, you know what? Maybe God is trying to tell me I have to go a different route. I made an appointment to do an IUI, and the week before the appointment, I had my first positive pregnancy test. So that was my like journey to pregnancy, just having dealt with the fibroids, going through a surgery, being told no to my desires, and then finally finding someone who would say yes. You know, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. You are totally fine. 
I'm, I'm just thinking about how determined you were to keep going and keep trying because I know, you know, sometimes women might call, you know, two or three doctors in, with whatever level of pregnancy issues they, or risk they may have. And it's like, they get enough no's and it's just like, okay, this doesn't happen. I can't even imagine going like to 12 to 13, you know, like to getting to the one that said yes. And yeah, I, I don't even know what I was thinking. <laughs> I mean, like I look back and I'm like, I mean, who do you think you are? But then a part of me is like, who do you, I, I know who I am, you know, like I know I could do this. I just need, I need someone in my corner. And it's true, Danielle, a lot of women, and I don't blame them. I, it's hard going and paying all those co-pays, like, right? You're going to all these doctors, you're sitting there for a five-minute um, meeting for them to just shut you down for really no other reason outside of the fact that it's not their norm. And so I guess there was something in me that was persistent. And I, I think also because I wasn't pregnant yet so i kind of felt like i had the time to kind of shop around but um it took over a year before i found that one doctor um and so anytime i talk to women about really if they really want it you know just seeking all the help you you can to get that yeah and thinking specifically about the occurrence of fibroids and like with many things, because trauma lives in our bodies and our lived experience, Black women are about like two to three more times to have fibroids throughout mm -hmm. their like reproductive mm -hmm. health. And, you know, I just think about how, nor how we normalize heavy, heavy periods and mm -hmm. painful periods. And I feel like most individuals, like, you know, when you're in that first stage of um, reproductive, you know, development, as you're beginning to menstruate and all of that, you'll go to a doctor and some of the first ways of dealing with those are, oh, we'll just put you on birth control or to, to, to maintain mm -hmm. instead of rather there being a discussion about like, why are you having these stressful, these, these um, heavy periods, these painful periods. And then you don't discover until you begin having children that there's actually something going on inside, you know? Um, yeah. Your story is this, like, I feel like very similar to mine. Like, I didn't know I had fibroids until I, my first pregnancy. And I'm like, wait, excuse me? <laughs> Same age as you. Like, I'm, I was very confused. And it was, and then just how passive it was. Like, but you're fine. They're like, they're not growing. They're not in the way. I'm like, but y'all, am I fine? Mm -hmm. And does this also explain a lot of other things that have been going on? So can we actually like dive deep into this fibroid issue that you're saying that's no problem, but like, is this going to affect my next pregnancy? Like there's just so many layers to it of it just being this normal thing. And I'm like, again, I, I think this goes back to what we always, I think, find when we're talking with a storyteller, just how we, how we don't actually ever get to talk about our bodies and mm -hmm. what happens to our bodies until we get to a place of wanting to have children. But I'm like, these discussions should have been ha had forever ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I mean, I don't even know how those conversations can arise, but I think it's, it's powerful to have platforms like this or just even within our own, in, you know, personal circles, just being a bit more candid and transparent about our, our experiences and also being aware, right? Looking back, I mean, this is many years ago, but looking back, there wasn't, I, you know what, Laurel, I remember 
when I was having heavy periods in my early 20s, I remember, I remember Googling it. I remember like one night waking up in, the, in, the, in my bed sheets full of blood, right? And I remember just Googling to Google. And I swear to you, there was not one response that said anything about fibroids. Now, if you go, you probably will see it. But I remember, I will never forget, all the responses were saying that some women have heavier periods um, than others. So like that was just my, my spectrum of normal. I was just on the heavier side. So I didn't even know to even stress it when I was going in for my pap smears or for my appointments. I didn't even know that I had to like, you know, make that a point to my doctor outside of just checking it off on the, you know, the little worksheet they give you. So I would write like, oh, my periods are heavy and they would never address it with me. And I would never bring it up to them because from what I have heard or seen or been told online was that it was normal. And so I think it's just a matter of finding different ways to make this known to women. And I, I frankly believe that the conversation is that the conversation has changed in terms of awareness. And I think it's good that a lot more women are coming out and being vocal about their, you know, menstrual issues and, you know, asking if their girlfriend has checked their uterus, had they talked to their doctor about it, right. have you um, really driven home the point that you need to be checked on? Right. And it's so interesting, you know, you're talking about you Googling it. I remember same thing, like always having the really bad periods. Mm-hmm. And, my, and I remember like my mom would be like, I don't understand because mine are only like three days long. I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like being picked up from school because I'm like in the bathroom crying my eyes out because of how bad my periods are, you know? And my mom being like, okay, like all she knew, like you said, there's not enough information. We'll take them to the doctors. They'll get on birth control and they'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. like not. And that takes us down a whole nother conversation of what birth control does and how mm-hmm. that impacts your reproductive health. And y'all, we could be here forever. I know. Because <laughs> they did the same thing to me. You know, they prescribed birth control. And I said, no, I'm not going to buy a hormone with a hormone. Like fibroids are really, you know, it's a, it's a hormone related issue. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know, maybe I'm not a medical professional. I don't know the science behind it, but I didn't choose that route. I know a lot of women do, but um, all to say, I, you know, the surgery for me was very effective. Yeah. Granted, a surgery does not heal fibroids. I right. mean, you can get them again. They can grow right back. I mean, so I do think that there needs to be some more work and research done to help prevent it and also truly truly cure it exactly and like you said just the options like there was no discussion about surgery there was just birth control but there wasn't discussion about like what kind of birth control what level should you be on i mean i didn't it wasn't until after my son that my new OBGYN was like wait this dose is not right for you Mm -hmm. you know like we need to shift things and i'm like Y'all, I've been going to the OBGYN since I was freaking 13. (laughs) And my chart is following me. Like, what is going on? You know? Just, you know, we're just going to pass along, I guess. (laughs) Uh, But, okay. So, that has happened. You're now pregnant. Yes. How, what was your pregnancy like? Yeah, so to be honest, um, it was wonderful. And I think it was just God's way of saying, like, I'm going to give you a break, Mabel. I'm going to give you a break for, for the next 10 months, okay? And however, I know after shortly, shortly after I got the positive test, 
I did experience some like uh, breakthrough bleeding, you know, um, for some women you may have some bleeding um, in the early stages. It doesn't necessarily mean miscarriage, but it could, it could throw you off. And I had that and it threw me off and I was very scared. Um, I got checked and everything was fine. Baby was fine. It was just a little, little blood that had to be released. And, but even, even though I was fine, it did kind of jar me a bit. And I remember after everything was checked and I was good, I made up in my mind that I was not going to have a fear-based pregnancy. I know it took me a long time to get pregnant, but I was determined with myself that I was not going to live in a state of fear, right? Because I know for a lot of women who experience infertility, you're always like on the edge of anxiety because you don't know, you know, you just don't know what the next 40 weeks will entail. But for me, I took that moment that was really scary and just stood on it and resolved to be hopeful. And I think just having that resolve within me helped me have a wonderful pregnancy. More or less, it was very good. My first trimester, I had like the usual nausea and you know, um, no vomiting, but just nausea and really um, extremely fatigued. But after my first trimester, it was it was great. I I even traveled abroad in my second trimester. I was able to continue my workouts and exercise. I felt very strong and sexy and beautiful. It was I was it was a very good time in my life. I I really embraced um, being pregnant. Now, even though I had the surgery for my fibroids a few years or a couple years prior, I still had fibroids when I was pregnant. They didn't remove every fibroid. It's very common for them to leave like the really small ones. And naturally, as we know about fibroids is that they grow. So from the time they were left and the time I got pregnant, they had grown. Not um, significantly, but they were there and I, they were detectable and they were, you know, they were there. Um, they weren't imposing on my, on my pregnancy, but I did experience um, some, what is called like a degeneration where they kind of like break down and it's quite a painful experience. Um, I had to stay at home during that time. And it's funny because I remember calling, you know, into my doctor to explain my symptoms and they were like, oh, it could be round ligament pain. And I'm like, this is not round ligament pain. At least I don't think so. And um, it wasn't, I mean, I wasn't diagnosed with degeneration, but I know it was a fibroid related scenario. So I just like to tell that to people because it could happen if you have fibroids while pregnant. It cannot, it varies from women to women. But outside of that, everything went well. Um, however, in my 25th week of pregnancy, my doctor died. Yeah. My OB that I went door to door 12 times, the one that I finally found, he died unexpectedly. He had like a stroke and passed away like immediately. And I was devastated. One, for the fact that he was a wonderful OB, brilliant, well-respected in the area. Like everyone knows him in Northern Virginia. And it was really, really painful for me to, you know, have been his patient and then also not get a chance to enjoy him through the end of my pregnancy. And then for me, it was just like, okay, I'm not going to 12 more doctors to find, you know, somebody. So I decided to stay with the practice, but um, it really broke my heart that the one person that I was relying on was no longer there. However, the other doctors 
in the practice were supportive because of him. Um, I also was diagnosed with gestational diabetes, which for me was a bummer because I, um, I had, you know, I was very active in my pregnancy and worked out and, you know, tried to eat as healthy as possible. And I still got GD, which I say this to say that your health and act activity level is not related to gestational diabetes. It's a placental issue. But for me, it was, I was not thrilled to have it. But the good part, I guess, was that my girlfriend was pregnant um, at the same time and she had GD. So we just kind of went through it together. We were just like, you know, complaining the rest of our pregnancy about it and testing our blood sugar. But it was pretty nice to not be alone and have to deal with that. But it wasn't too, it didn't in, impose on my pregnancy, but it was just another factor, right? And so towards um, the 34th week of pregnancy, I decided um, with um, some discussion with my doula, I decided to switch practices. I wasn't really feeling the two doctors that were remaining. And I just was like, I, I want to start with somebody new. Um, and my doula suggested that I join a midwife and OB practice. And um, I did. And the only reason that they took me in was because they respected my doctor, um, the one who passed away. Um, I was told that if not for him, they probably would have hesitated in taking me into their, their practice because of my myomectomy um, history. So I guess it kind of shows that a lot of people, a lot of OBs aren't really willing to do to take that chance, but they took a chance on me and um, I was grateful for that. And I decided to work um, with the midwives with the support of the, o with an OB. So I had more of a midwife centered um, prenatal care towards the end of my um, third trimester. And so um, that was my pregnancy in a nutshell. I, I did a lot of preparation by hiring the doula. I did a lot of reading a lot of listening to podcasts and stories. Um, I tried to tune out like negative information. Um, I feel like once I had a really good provider, I felt very confident to move forward. How far into your pregnancy did you hire your doula? Right, so at the time of pregnancy, I was a doula. So I hired her like early, I would say maybe towards the end of my first trimester. Um, and I know it, it sounds funny, like you're a doula, why would you need a doula? But I needed a doula. I just needed someone to kind of discuss things with and get clarification. Also at that time, I was a very new doula. So I wanted someone who was a bit more experienced. And um, as a doula, I, I believe in that kind of support during labor. So um, I chose one that I, I was really pleased with. And um, we we were um, in discussion very early in my pregnancy. The intentionality of um, what you said of not having a fear-based pregnancy and birth, like you can just feel that in your prep, like you thinking about your care providers and just how important that is to like set yourself up for a birth that you envision, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, truly believe that there is a lot of uh, fear-based mentality when it comes to childbirth. 
which is understandable. I think the media kind of feeds that. A lot of our friends and family kind of feed that too. You know, some people give a lot of negative birth stories or experiences that kind of um, become, we, we kind of impose that as our own experience, but we never had a baby yet, you know? So I, I was very intentional with not just finding a provider, but also working within myself and digging deep within myself to kind of encourage myself that I am capable, I'm strong. I know it sounds like very like, um, you know, affirmation based, but that's what, that's what really drove me. Just reminding myself that I can do it. I've made it this far and I only have so much more to go. So, um, for me, I do believe that a lot of prayer, um, and, and, and meditation really helped me streamline my preparation for pregnancy and delivery. Laurel and I often talk about, um, the storytellers that we have within, um, our podcast and how it, it's actually our oral history, right? Mm -hmm. So you talk about how our families are speak about their pregnancies and how that affects us as we um, have our own. And, we, and the only things we can think of sometimes are, oh, we were going to feel pain, right? <laughs> it's going like that's the number one thing you know and get is going to happen if nothing else. Mm -hmm. But as we present these stories as these living oral history for our families. Um, we can share these too, right? They're not just to live on the podcast. We can send these to our families. We can mm -hmm. talk about this stuff with our families as we have younger cousins or, or nieces and nephews coming up or siblings that are have going into that stage of their lives and that you have an opportunity to share this story as an, um, a positive experience. It has the highs and lows too, right? But it shows a different way that we learn from her. Absolutely, Danielle. And you know, for me, this is not my first time sharing this story on a podcast. I've shared my story before. And, and this is absolutely not for me to brag, you know, telling my birth story, but I was truly empowered by so many others, like dozens, if not hundreds of other stories, whether they were C-section, vaginal, unmedicated, medicated, I was empowered as well. So for me, I feel like by repeating this and repeating this, and like you said, giving this oral history, it, there's someone out there who is going to benefit from this, especially if we have as many women who are having fibroids and having surgeries to remove those fibroids and still have that desire. You still want to have that desire to, to have a vaginal birth, but you're being told no. I just feel like the power in sharing my story is to encourage someone else to keep trying keep going you are not crazy for wanting to do this so i just thank you guys for giving me this platform to share yet again all of that <laughs> <laughs> so can you now walk us through your birth tell us about your birth experience this birth experience okay so um, like I said, I had a doula, so I was in constant conversation with her about my options. I would repeat that word, my options. I knew what my options were, despite the fact that I was technically a high-risk mom, right? I had a myomectomy, I had gestational diabetes. Um, so a lot of times, you know, we get these um, diagnoses or diagnoses, that's how you say it. And, um, you're termed as high risk for whatever reason. And sometimes the moms feel like, oh, I'm high risk, so I can't do all these things. But you also wanna know all the things that you can do. And I said a no to a lot. The first thing I said no to was no induction. 
And I think that was the game changer for me because naturally I probably would have been told to be induced by say, you know, my due date at 40 weeks, but I refused to be induced and I insisted on having um, a spontaneous um, labor. And thankfully my midwives were not pushy and they agreed with me. So I insisted on no induction. Instead, I um, tried to induce labor naturally through having sex or having my membranes swept or um, walking a lot, doing a lot of exercise. Even at one point, I almost went in for acupuncture. I never got to the appointment, but that was an option for me. Um, I also got an induction massage. And I honestly think that's what set off my um, contractions because about two days after the induction massage, I went into labor. And so um, one night it was very rest, I was very restless. And so I went down on the couch to sleep and I couldn't sleep there. And I, after some fitful sleeping, I woke up and I knew I was in labor. I was contracting. Um, they were very spread out, spread apart, but I knew I was in labor. So um, I called my doula and my husband was on his way to work, but I told him to come back home. And um, we stayed at home as long as possible. And I labored at home. Uh, with my doula, my mother-in-law, <laughs> it's a long story, but she came to the house that day. And naturally I would not have wanted her around. I love my mother-in-law, but I, I, looking back, I feel like it was just best if I just had my own space with my doula and my husband, but she was there and she wasn't like intrusive or anything, but I stayed at home and I labored as much as possible. I walked the neighborhood and we did all the things in the house. And then when I felt that I was ready, um, we went to the hospital. So I went to the hospital. They checked me. I was uh, five centimeters, and um, we continued to labor um, in the room. I, my, my midwife, because it's a midwife and OB practice, they kind of like merge, um, you know, protocol. And one of the the ideas was that I would have to be continuously monitored. And I begged her to give me time to labor without being monitored the whole time. I did not want to be strapped in bed. I, I wanted to move in labor and we came to a pretty good a middle ground for me to be on, the, on the, the monitor for about 30 minutes and off the monitor for 30. And that was a great um, way for me to kind of let them do their thing, but then also let me do my thing. And um, to be honest, it was a long labor, um, which is not, uh, this is quite common for a lot of first-time moms that you would have a long labor, but my labor was very long, but I was ready to go. I had great support. Um, I did a lot of laboring um, on the toilet, a lot of laboring in the shower, on the bed. I did everything to just kind of open my body up and be very receptive to, you know, the experience. I did get my waters broken. Um, and after they broke my water, I feel like that's when things really intensified for me. Um, I opted to use nitrous oxide, which is uh, laughing gas, to kind of subdue the pain. But for me, for me, that was a horrible mistake. Um, it made me very loopy. It made me feel very out of control. Um, I did not like the nitrous oxide. I will not do that again. But it was an option for me, and um, I took it. And it didn't work, but um, that's something I did in labor to kind of offset the pain. 
um, after some time, I want to say after maybe eight or nine hours, um, I became very exhausted and I asked for the epidural. I had tried to go unmedicated, but I had made it very clear to my birth team that I am not um, opposed to an epidural. So I opted for an epidural and um, I got the epidural and I was like nine and a half centimeters. I was very close to being um, uh, fully dilated, but they, they agreed with it. Um, and I asked for it to be a light epidural. And I think that's something a lot of people don't know. You can request like the amount of uh, medication you get in your epidural. I just said, I just want enough for me to like take a nap. <laughs> you know, I know I'm like at 10 practically there, but I just need a break. And it was the best decision for me because I literally took a nap after the epidural. I woke up a few hours later and I was ready to push. And so I feel like even though, you know, I had labored all that time, I think um, the epidural did not impose on me progressing or anything because I got it at the end. So after I woke up from um, my nap, um, a couple of hours later, it was time for me to push. And I pushed in multiple positions on my side, on my hands and knees, um, on my back. And after almost two hours of pushing, my son was delivered. And I, it, you know, every time I think about it, it just, I just like it like this big cheesy smile because I remember like that final push and he comes out and I had like this huge rush of adrenaline. Like it just like washed on me. And I remember like, like screaming, like, I can't believe I did it. Like, it was like everything that was hold, I was holding on to from the time I was looking for those doctors to that very moment just swarmed my soul. And I was like, I can't believe I do it. I, I literally threw my bed, myself off of the bed, like out of joy. I was that excited. My husband was like, all right, calm down. And I'm like, I'm like, like literally breaking out of the bed. Like I was about to jump out of bed because I was so thrilled that I delivered my son vaginally after having, you know, this, you know, surgery and being told no, I was like, I did it. Like I did it. So it was such a powerful moment for me. Um, it was so re redemptive and rewarding to have made it to that point. And my son was born and he was healthy. He was big, y'all. He was nine pounds, six ounces. I had no idea. Like I realized looking back, they never really told me his weight in the last few weeks. Like I know they check you and everything, but they never said, oh, you have a big baby. So when he came out and he was that big, I was like, that's crazy. I feel like if I had known that, that may have like made me feel a little different about, you know, having a big baby or whatever. So um, it's it was a very, very special moment for me um, to have delivered him um, despite his size, despite my history and all be well. Now, I will add and say that after I delivered my son and he's getting, you know, taken care of and they're preparing to deliver the placenta, immediately after delivering the placenta, um, things went a little, a little left. Um, I remember the placenta comes out and immediately I get dizzy, like I can't see. And I start to tell my husband, I'm like, I can't see right now, but I, I want to close my eyes. I want to go to sleep like really quickly. And he's like, 
no, I don't think he should sleep. And so I'm like trying to keep my eyes open, but I can't see anything. And so I'm looking at my midwife and she's like hollering for a doctor to come into the room. And I try to like bend down to look to see like in between my legs. And I can't see much, but I do see a lot of blood. Like her, 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 all of her arms, her forearms and her hands were covered in blood. And so after that, it's a flurry of things that happened, but um, I had a hemorrhage, a pretty serious hemorrhage. And um, I had to have a blood transfusion. Um, I also had to get a, um, like a balloon placed into my uterus to help stop the bleeding. Um, and it all happened within, literally, within minutes. But um, everyone was very, very responsive. Um, immediately, once that blood loss occurred, I guess, you know, I guess that's where the dizziness was coming from because I was losing blood so quickly. But they were very swift with their response. And um, they took care of things, but it was very scary. It was scary, especially for my husband, because I guess I, we never really thought about that being a scenario. Like I've heard about it, but I never thought about it. And after having talked to my midwife about what happened, she described it as um, uterine atomy. And that is when your uterus is too weak to contract after you deliver the placenta. And so it kind of just gives up and that's where the blood loss occurs. So it wasn't related to my fibroids or my fibroid history. I like to say that because I feel like people will be like, oh girl, that's why you, you hemorrhage because your fibroids. And I'm like, no, it's not the fibroids. It's actually a common occurrence. But I think the reason why a lot of women, uh, it is a very, it's also a high risk for women dying, hemorrhage. And I think the reason why a lot of women die is because maybe you know doctors aren't really swift with dealing with it. But I was told by my midwife and OB that they were prepared for it just in case, which is kind of cool to know that they had that conversation behind the scenes and had like their heart all ready to go just in case I hemorrhaged. I don't know why they were anticipating it, but they were ready and they dealt with it immediately. So really after the birth and after the hemorrhage and everything, you know, um, died down, I was okay. I was okay and I was able to be discharged within the right um, frame of time, but it was a scenario that um, I was not expecting, but I'm glad that I survived it. We are too, certainly. That is definitely one of the um, major issues with Black women in childbirth, mm -hmm. and a lot of that has to do with one, yes, there's some, um, of course, your, your uterus, especially after pushing um, for two hours and, and working really hard in mm -hmm. some ways that that can be prevented and, I, and this is especially good for our listeners is uh, monitoring your iron levels mm -hmm. um, and being willing to accept the Pitocin after you've delivered um, and, and telling them that in advance if you need to um, even if you're not using Pitocin during the labor to say I'm okay with it after I deliver mm -hmm. um, because then it will keep contracting your uterus. Um, but there's another thing I wanted to tap in on was that you being at nine and a half and wanting to rest and them allowing that, allowing, right? Uh, because, because sometimes in the labor and delivery room, once you hit 10, it's like this magic, everything's gotta go, it's time to push. And it's important for people who have not given birth um, or even if they have felt rushed at giving birth before once they hit 10, like, it's okay. 
to just let baby continue to come on down on their own. They will come out. <laughs> right? By book or by they will come out. <laughs> Some of them come out all on their own. Some mamas have not had to push at all, right? So because you just sit there and let it up. You allow, right? You just wait. <laughs> right. And it's it's good for women to know that. I knew that, which is why I was like, okay, I yes, I am nine and a half, but I need the break. But for me, you know, in many cases for a lot of women, you could be at a 10 and your baby's still quite high up in the canal. It hasn't even dropped. It may take another 45 hour for it to drop. So for me, baby was still quite high, even though I had dilated to nine and a half. So um I understood that. I discussed that with them. And so having the epidural was to my benefit because it gave me the rest that I needed to um, have the energy to push. And so I, it's important for women to be aware, like, don't think that 10 means pushing, 10 means dilated. It doesn't mean you're crowning. Right, right. And I think that that goes into also people's understanding of um, that it's not just dilation that we want. We need to know where baby is positioned. Mm -hmm. We need to know um, how forward your cervix is. Like all of that is important to make sure that like baby's actually ready to come down. Absolutely. So um, yeah, just throwing that out there in the atmosphere, um, epidural at nine or even 10 centimeters is not an end all be all. It might be just what you need to be able to finish the last section of your labor. So. Um, think about it if that's something you want to do. Mabel, can you tell us about your um, postpartum, like once you actually went home? Sure. So um, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier. It's not a, a, a big factor, but I, I'm Ghanaian American. Um, I was born and raised here, but my family's from Ghana. And so for a lot of West African culture, it's very, very big for your mom and mother-in-law and aunties to be at home and support you and kind of usher you into this new phase of motherhood, especially with your first child. And so I was aware and, and very excited about that. Um, my mom and my mother-in-law were very hands-on and present. Um, I had um, a very big goal to breastfeed. And thankfully I have, um, I have a, a church auntie who um, is an IBCLC. So she came to the hospital and helped me and um, helped my son latch and everything was fine. I mean, you know, it's never perfect, but his latch was good and he was transferring milk and I felt very confident upon going home. But when I went home, my mom and mother-in-law were like, I couldn't, I shouldn't breastfeed. Like, it just seemed to be like I was overworking myself for the sake of feeding my child. I think they were concerned like, oh, you've gone through a very difficult labor. You should be resting. Let us feed the baby and you, you know, rest and take care of yourself. And I really had to like, like stand up for myself and be like, no, I'm breastfeeding. You can support me in this or you don't have to be here. And I know like, and I'm not like a controversial person at all. I was raised to be like very like subservient. But for me, in that moment, I had to build boundaries in terms of how I wanted to care for myself and care for my child. And it started with me insisting on breastfeeding my way. And if they couldn't support me in that, they just could not be there. I could, I, there was no way I was going to be successful in breastfeeding if I didn't have family around me who were, who were supportive. So that really changed the picture of my, my, um, 
my postpartum, I was alone. After that conversation, you know, my mom kind of went her way. My mother-in-law went her way. And I was at home with my son, with my husband, and um, they would visit from time to time. But um, it just allowed me to have the space that I needed to be able to care for him in that way. And honestly, um, our breastfeeding relationship went wonderfully. And I think that's because I set up the boundaries I needed to kind of um, meet that goal. In fact, I'm still breastfeeding, which is a whole nother conversation. But I say all that to say that um, that was a huge, huge deal for me. And I had to learn how to create the space to be successful at that. Um, also, I my midwife diagnosed me with um, diastasis recti, which is very common for women, which is um, ab separation, um, usually provoked by pregnancy. And I had a three finger gap. It was quite big, three to four finger gap. And I, you know, I had started going to a physical therapist, but I think mentally after postpartum, I just wasn't thinking about myself like that. Like I would go and I would go just to come back home. Like I wasn't there mentally. I wasn't focused. I was just always thinking about like, I need to get back home. I need to get back home. So honestly, um, looking back, I think I probably would take my personal physical healing a bit more seriously, knowing that I did have family that I could rely on to watch my son, but um, mentally I wasn't there. So um, I had the diastasis recti. I did go and do some physical therapy, but I would suggest if anyone has that and they're willing and ready, I would strongly urge you to, to pursue taking care of that gap because your core is important. It wasn't even about my physical, like how I looked, it was just about having a stronger core. And I wish I worked on that a bit more in my early months after delivery. I also went to see a pelvic floor specialist um, because I had such a big baby and I you know, spent all that time pushing him out. I went to see a pelvic floor specialist and my pelvic floor was very, very, very weak. Um, and I saw her a few times, but again, I wasn't there mentally to be consistent. Um, thankfully, I didn't have too many issues with like incontinence or anything at home, but I do feel that if I stuck it out with my pelvic floor specialist that I would have seen better results sooner. So for the, for the most part, postpartum, um, in terms of my breastfeeding goals, it went very well in terms of my physical health. Um, in terms, I, I think I could have, I feel like I could have done more, but again, I was like in la-la land love. I was just la-la land of love. Like I just wanted to be with my son all the time. I wanted to be in his company. Nobody could take care of him the way I could. Like I, I was like tiger mom in the first like six months after having him. And hey, I'm not even going to apologize for it. It is what it is. But I guess like for future pregnancies, I think I will kind of do a bit more shifting and making sure that I feel um, a bit more complete physically and emotionally and mentally. My husband was very supportive and helpful. Um, I had to learn how to communicate with him my needs and, um, you know, re-establishing how we parent together. So postpartum went very well. I also think it went pretty well because I didn't have to go back to work immediately. I, um, my husband and I had discussed me staying at home anyway after having him. So I think I was very relaxed 
very relaxed because I knew I didn't have the pressure of going back to work at say six weeks or 12 weeks. So I think that made a difference in how I recovered because I knew I had, a, had more time to do so. Huge proponent, fan of people, birthing people, going and getting pelvic floor therapy and physical therapy. Yes. Because no matter, you know, size of baby, anything, the work that it takes to, to grow a human, <laughs> mm -hmm. to bring forth a human, does a lot on our bodies that we don't always see. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, um, I always say it wrong, diastis, diastis recti, mm -hmm. um, goes unnoticed if it's on the smaller end. Or it might be like, oh, I can deal with it later. Or even, you know, for you, you were taking care of it, but be, the extra work that it does to actually take care of it, we're not always, like you said, there to do it. Mm -hmm. Pelvic floor therapy, pushing out a whole human in general. <laughs> the work that that takes, it does shift things for our pelvic floor. And so I am all about, and I'm like always tell people like pelvic floor therapy, pelvic floor health is so important and just wish that it was like a part of, you know, just what postpartum care looked like. Well, that, I mean, I wish we even had a model of what postpartum care should look like, but that would be included in that. That like, right. along with your follow-up appointment with your care provider, you also have to do a couple weeks of pelvic floor therapy and see a lactation, uh, you know, all of these people are coming to your house actually, but that's, you know, my <laughs> own that's development. Right, right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, and I honestly didn't even, I wouldn't have even thought about it despite my doula, you know, background or knowledge to look out for right like i learned about that through my midwife we just had a conversation she's like you should see a pelvic floor specialist you should see a physical therapist so it's good to have like the right people on your birth team to kind of encourage you to do that or even like talking with friends about it right i had a girlfriend who had no idea about dr until i, I mentioned i was going through it and so it's just good like we said to you know share stories and experiences and ask questions yeah, like once you find out you have that information, I believe you have to act upon it, right? Don't just feel like, oh yeah, I have the art. YouTube isn't going to give you everything, but it's a start, you know? So just once you find out something, use that knowledge to your advantage to heal and recover because that's, your child needs you to be strong and healthy. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Lauren Turner, the artist, is that a birthnerds.com. Um, she's got a new new t-shirt that has all of the people, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> the physical therapist, the doula, like your midwife, all the people are like oh. on one shirt. <laughs> I need that shirt. I would love it. And it's funny, it's, you know, for some women, it may seem overwhelming. I mean, when you start to like list all the things, it's like, is it even worth it? But it is, you know, it's, and once you, you have everything in place, then I think that's where the assurance comes that you're not alone, that you have the support, that you will, it will get better. But I think for a lot of women, like even for say uh, breastfeeding, right? If you don't have 
a lactation consultant that you can seek out or you don't have someone who can assist you in it, a lot of women give up because they don't have the right support. And so I think it's just a matter of, um, you know, just being aware of what your options are and utilizing it to your advantage. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, your story with us. All parts of it um, are so beneficial and, and so important for everyone to hear. So thank you so much for that. Is there anything else that you would like um, to leave with our listeners, whether that's resources, advice, anything else from your experience? Yes, indeed. I wrote a few things down. I promise I won't go over time. I'll try not to. Oh, do whatever. Listen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, I will say this as a, as a myomectomy patient, before pregnancy, right? For me, the big deal was advocacy. I, and as you can hear, I went to see 12 doctors. You may not even have to get to that point, I hope. But if, if, if you desire to have a birth experience a certain way, I strongly insist that you persist. Like, do not give up. Do not take no for an answer, especially if you are aware of your um, medical history, right? I'm not saying that every myomectomy patient is going to be able to have a vaginal birth. Absolutely not. But what I am saying is that there is research out there. There are medical journals and articles out there. Um, I could probably give you a list of the ones that I use. Maybe you can post that somewhere um, as reference. But there are reports out there that are accessible to both, you know, the common woman and, you know, your OB or whomever that you can review and have a conversation about. And I, you know, when I was pregnant, I was listening to a lot of podcasts and I listened to one podcast about this um, white woman. She was pregnant with, with twins. And I don't remember the, the details, but I remember that maybe one of them was like breach. And, you know, once they found out the baby was breached, they were like, oh no, you have to have a C-section or something like that. And she had, when she was telling her story, she had such audacity in, in insisting on having the birth experience that she want, wanted. And I remember listening to that podcast and I was like, she has got the nerve. And I think that for some of us, we just need to build up the nerve to, to insist on what we desire. And I think that that listening to her, like standing her ground for her, her options that she had and she knew that she had was able to give her the birth experience that she desired. And so for me, I, I just, I remember listening to that and I was motivated all over again because it does take a layer of nerve for you to talk back, not rudely, but you know, talk back to your provider and say, actually, no, or actually, can we try this? But the only way you can do that is if you are aware and if you believe that you can do it. And so I think above all, especially for women who have a history of fibroids or have a history of fibroid surgery, you're going to have to go harder. You, you just are going to have to go harder when it comes to your pregnancy and delivery. You're going to have to be a bit more aware. You're going to have to know things more than your common friend who is just going on with her pregnancy. And that's just the way the cookie crumbles. But I think that is also very powerful. You know a little bit more about your uterus than the next person. And so I would strongly suggest that if you are, um, if you have fibroids or if you had a myomectomy to not lose hope um, that it is possible. There was one woman who listened to my story 
she lived in New York and she would she was willing to come to Virginia to have her delivery with my doctor or my midwife who did it. And unfortunately, my midwife told her no, but she went back to New York and found somebody else and she had a vaginal birth and she had a myomectomy. So that goes to show that you just, you got to step outside of the box, step outside of your comfort zone. But if you believe it, I, you might be able to achieve it. And um, that is like, that's my battle cry. Advocate, advocate for yourself, advocate, do not give up. Don't let them tell you no. Don't let them put you through the C-section door if you know you don't fit in that door. I would also say another thing is that try to build your birth team early. You know, find a doula if you feel you need that support. Change your doctor if they're not in line with your goals. Find a midwife if you're looking for someone who has a holistic approach to birth. Build your birth team and trust everyone and everyone on your team and you know, keep everyone on the same page in terms of your desires. But above all, you are you as the birthing person, you have the control. It's your birth. And I mean, a lot of women just kind of give up that control to their provider, but you have to be an active participant in this experience. And so as you are building a solid birth team, remember you are the captain of that ship. You lead the way. Of course, there may be predicaments that may come that may cause for flexibility and change, but don't ever feel as if you don't have a say. Um, I did a lot of research and reading um, before pregnancy, um, during pregnancy, um, and also in preparation for labor. I watched um, The Business of Being Born. A lot of women may have seen that, but that was very captivating for me. Um, I read a book called Supernatural, Supernatural Birth by Jackie Mize, I believe that's her name. It's a Christian-based book um, based on having a, um, a positive mindset when it comes to having birth. And a lot of the scripture in that book really, um, um, it really built me up when I, it came to getting pregnant and also having a healthy pregnancy. Um, like I said, I listened to a lot of birth stories, different ones. I knew I wanted a vaginal birth, but I listened to people who had C-sections. I listened to those who had home births. So I tried to keep my mind very open, but I also tried to stay very focused on my goal. Um, and um, there was a book by Mama Natural. Um, she's a popular YouTuber. Her name is Genevieve. I can't remember her last name, but she has like this guide to natural birth and pregnancy. And again, I wasn't against having a medicated birth, but I still use that book as reference. It's a wonderfully written book. Um, yeah, it's called Mama, Nat Mama Natural's Guide to Natural Birth and Pregnancy. I don't know the title. I'll find it for you. But that was a really, really good resource. And I recommend it to all my friends and all of my clients. And so um, those are just some resources that I use. Like I said, I um, did a lot of research on having a vaginal birth after laparoscopic myomectomy. And I can share those articles with you. There's about six or seven that I use. And I think they're still effective for women who desire to have my experience today. Yes, send it all to us, put them in the show notes, make sure that it is all available um, for our listeners to, to use on their journey for sure. Um, but thank you for all of that. Seriously, just thank you. 
Oh, it's an important discussion, um, an important topic that are coming up within just this one story that affects so many Black mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. um, that just like we we talked about before, just it just goes unaddressed, right? And, and everything becomes so normal, like dysfunction, right? It's mm -hmm. just like it's not. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Laurel. Thank you, Danielle. I appreciate it. I think the work you're doing is powerful, and um, just keep going. Thank you. Going. This is your form of advocacy, and this is probably the most important form of advocacy because we don't hear everyone's story, but when you do hear somebody's story, your life is changed. Thanks for listening to First Stories in Color. To hear this show and other episodes, head to firststoriesincolor.com.